I'm Barbara Buchanan, and this is Tales from Weird Scotland. Fierty, a winter's fable. If I'm being honest, I didn't really take to Gavin. He had been at school with Richard, who was my friend, so Gavin came as baggage, a kind of buy-one-get-one-free friend. Not that Gavin was on the scene when Richard and I met. That was in the second week of our first term at university in Edinburgh, when we both went to audition for one of the uni choirs. Choral music, Taverner, Purcell, Handel and so on, you get the idea. The choirmaster had each of us sing in turn, anything we liked, a cappella. I hadn't seen Richard, he'd been sitting at the back of the rehearsal room, but when he came forward to sing, there he was the archetypal choir boy. At 18, he looked much younger, medium height, slight build, and a sweet, unblemished, heart-shaped face. He wore his dark curly hair fashionably long. Put him in a frill-necked surplus and he could model as a chorister in the front of a Christmas card. Richard was a tenor, and a good one. I'm a contralto, in case you're wondering. Everyone was successful in the auditions. No surprise, you don't want to join a choir like that unless you love choral music and can hold a tune. Then we all sat around and introduced ourselves, said where we were from, what we were studying and so on. I liked Richard straight away. He was from the west coast of Scotland, somewhere north of Oban, and he was studying marine biology. His mission was to save the oceans, one fish at a time. This was long before conservation was fashionable, so looking back, Richard was a pioneer. I am from a small borders town, one with an abbey. I couldn't wait to escape to the city, to university. I was studying law. We lived in the same halls of residence, so we fell into a routine of walking back together after the weekly choir practice, picking up a fish supper on the way, which we ate in one or the other of our rooms. This was how we became friends. Richard was very bright and easy to talk to. Our conversations focused on our courses. Richard was in his element, and I too had chosen well. Law fascinates me. It encompasses all aspects of the human condition. Personal rights and responsibilities, defining what is fair and what is reasonable, what is acceptable and what is downright wrong, and what is appropriate punishment for the guilty. I wanted a glittering career in the field of criminal law, but I didn't know whether I would prosecute or defend. You probably know this, but uniquely, three verdicts are possible in Scotland when a crime has been committed. Guilty, not guilty, and not proven. Not proven is likely to be abolished and consigned to legal history soon. A pity, I rather like it. It allows for an outcome when a jury can't be sure the evidence weighs towards not guilty. Those who receive a not proven verdict go free to live their lives. But there is always the whisper that they got away with it and justice not served. 
No account is taken of their conscience. The law, to borrow a phrase from Queen Elizabeth I, does not make windows into men's souls. Unilife continued along a well-trodden path that year. We made friends, we studied, we sang. After the exams, we went our separate ways for the summer. Richard to work on the trout farms on the country estate his father managed for its owner, the lead singer in a heavy metal band. I kid you not, a genuine rock star. Richard had known him for years and liked him a lot. I was yet to hear Richard say a bad word about anyone. I had an admin job in one of the law firms in my hometown. One of the partners took me under his wing and I sat in on court cases and even tried my hand at drafting legal documents. I had a good summer. In our second year, we moved into flats with friends in Marchmont, a popular area for student flat shares. Richard lived a couple of streets up from me, so we resumed our weekly post-choir practice walks home. Our takeaways were usually eaten in my flat, the first we came to certainly, but for Richard, there was another attraction. My flatmate, a medical student called Tish. I thought they would be great together, but with them both being terminally shy, they inched towards a relationship at glacial speed. One sunny autumn Sunday afternoon, Tish and I wandered across the parkland to nearby Brunsfield in search of coffee and cake in one of the many cafes there. Coming towards us along the path was Richard, with a boy we hadn't seen before. This was Gavin. Gavin had the look of the well-heeled, expensively educated of which there were many at our university. Tweed jacket, button-down blue shirt, tan cords and brown brogues, which might have been handmade, the kind with slick leather soles. He was much taller than Richard, with a burly build and fair hair which flopped artfully over his forehead. I knew Richard had boarded at a prestigious boys' school up north somewhere. He went there, he said, because his father had. He didn't talk much about it. He and Gavin had been in the same year, and they had that shorthand of shared history I had noticed amongst boarding school kids, the result of spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week together over extended periods of time. Gavin had dropped out of his course at a Glasgow college before the end of his first year. He didn't say why, but lots of students drop out. It's nothing new. His parents had suggested a move to the more genteel surroundings of Edinburgh and had bought him a small modern flat with a great view over Holyrood Park, giving him a fresh start. I had been right about the wealthy background, but they did expect him to find a job. The only thing I could see that Gavin and Richard really had in common was a love of music, but they had different tastes. Gavin, it transpired, had a great passion for and in-depth knowledge of rock and pop music from the 1950s to the present day. This had already landed him a job in one of the independent record shops which flourished then in the city centre. He didn't earn much, but that hardly mattered. I said... I didn't really take to Gavin. I am clever. No blowing my own trumpet. I have the grades to prove it. And I like clever people. I make no apology for that. Gavin was not apparently, as they say, the sharpest tool in the box. His conversation was pretty limited. 
but he could talk on his specialist subject, obscure B-sides, seemingly for hours. I was bored, rigid. He was, Tish said, nice. That damning fallback adjective you use when you can't think of a more interesting epithet. I suppose nice summed Gavin up. She found his old-fashioned manners endearing, but opening doors for us, helping us on with our coats and so on, irritated me. What century were we in? With Richard the only friend he had in town, we began to see a lot of Gavin. He became a fixture sitting on our sofa. Tish's birthday was at the end of October, and we planned a joint birthday and Halloween party. She wanted to go on one of the ghost tours which operated in the historic old town. You know the kind of thing. A costumed guide takes the group into some of the dark atmospheric alleys called Closes off the Royal Mile and tells grim tales from the city's history, stories of horror and hauntings, with the occasional jump out from the shadows designed to elicit screams and general merriment. Everyone was keen to go except Gavin. He offered to stay at the flat and get everything set up for the party. Nice of him, Tish said. Walking back from choir practice, I asked Richard why Gavin was so set against the ghost tour. On the basis I kept it to myself, he told me. Gavin had always been afraid of the dark. At school, he had even been permitted a nightlight. Most of the boys had a nickname. Richard's was Fishface. No issue with that, he liked fish faces, and his connection to a rock star gave him a certain glamour. He was never bullied. Gavin was not so lucky. His fear of the dark made him an easy target. His nickname was Fearty, that old Scots word for someone who was afraid, who lived in fear. His nightlight mysteriously disappeared, and if he were alone in a corridor, it would be plunged into darkness and his nickname whispered and chanted over and over again from dark corners. Firti, Firti, Firti. The pranks became ever more inventive, ever crueler. They made his life a misery. Gavin found refuge in studying the music he loved. That explained why he knew so much. I couldn't figure out why Gavin didn't stand up for himself and fight back. I would have. But then I have never been a fierty. Gavin was still terrified now of what might lurk in the shadows. Ghosties and ghoulies and things that go bump in the night. Not the wisest plan then to live in Edinburgh, one of the world's most haunted cities. But here he was. Our choir's annual Christmas music performance in St Giles Cathedral, the High Kirk of Edinburgh on the Royal Mile, was a resounding success. The church was packed, and I don't think we had ever sung so well. Gavin and Tish were there, and with some of our fellow singers, we planned to go for a drink afterwards in one of the pubs in the Cowgate, the street which ran in the valley below the Royal Mile. It was freezing that night, and the pavements were already slippery and icing up. We couldn't remember which close to go down to get to our chosen pub, so I walked ahead to check it out, whilst Richard stayed behind to get the group together. I was well wrapped up in my new-to-me coat. I had found it in a vintage clothes shop in the grass market, and I'd had to have it, despite it being too big. 
It was luxurious black velvet and reached almost to my ankles. It fastened with military-style frogging, had sleeves which flared at the wrists, and an oversized hood with a long tassel at the back. Anna Karenina would have loved it. As I made my way down the street, I spotted Gavin following me. He would not allow a young lady to walk unescorted down a dark street alone at night. Honestly. I quickened my step, and finding the clothes I was looking for, ducked inside. To this day, I do not know why I did what I did next. I didn't plan it. I have always found practical jokes puerile. I hid in a dark doorway out of sight. Gavin was seconds behind me. He stopped at the top of the close and called my name. I didn't reply. He seemed to hesitate before venturing in. He walked right past me and into the pool of light illuminating the paved area before the steep stone steps which led down to the cowgate. He was looking round for me. I pulled my hood down to obscure my face, stepped out from my hiding place and threw my arms out wide. I had emerged as an unearthly, ghostly, faceless ghoul silhouetted against the dim light from the top of the close. I spat out the first words which came into my head. Fierty, fierty, fierty! Gavin was rooted to the spot, his face a mask of pure terror. Then he began to stagger away from me. The slick soles of his brogues found no grip on the icy top step and he fell backwards, downwards and out of sight. I heard a woman scream. I reached the top of the close just as the others arrived. I gasped. Gavin slipped and fallen down the steps. Then all hell broke loose. As one, the group slipped and stumbled down to where Gavin lay at an unnatural angle, unconscious. The blood pooling and dripping down the steps from the back of his head was melting the ice. He had landed at the feet of a couple who were trying gingerly to walk up the steps from the bottom. They had seen him slip and fall. It was the woman who had screamed. An ambulance was called and Gavin was covered with coats to keep him warm. Tish insisted he should not be moved. The police made inquiries. I kept my statement simple. Gavin had slipped on the ice and fallen. I had been yards away when he fell. This was borne out by the couple who had witnessed it. There was no one else in sight. And we had all been stone cold sober. Examples of shining youth on our way from singing in a Christmas carol concert in the cathedral. Positively angelic. Then the local residents weighed in, saying that something like this had been bound to happen. They had been asking the council for years for more grit bins in the closes so they could salt the icy slopes and steps in bad weather. No question, but that this was an accident. Gavin lost his fight for life on Christmas morning as the result of an irrecoverable brain injury. I had no choice but to attend the funeral with Richard and Tish. 
His parents requested everyone wear bright clothes and a selection of Gavin's favourite music was played. We left the church to Cat Stevens' version of Morning Has Broken, the nearest they could get to traditional, I suppose. His parents said how much they appreciated what we had tried to do to help him. I muttered the usual platitudes. I went over the events in the close in my mind, time and time again. Gavin slipped on an icy step, the slick leather soles of his brogues having no grip. He fell and suffered a brain injury from which he died. All true. Would he have fallen if I had not frightened him? Doubtful. Was Richard to blame for telling me Gavin's fears and nickname in the first place? Of course not. And what about the school bullies? Did they bear some guilt? Marginal, but they weren't in the close that night. The only person in the close with Gavin was me. Any guilt was all mine. But what good would it do to come clean? It would change nothing and so much damage would be done. Even if no charges were laid against me, and charges were a possibility, I would lose everything I had worked for. No degree, no legal career, friends disgusted and my parents devastated. Richard would never forgive himself, of that I was certain. And kinder for Gavin's family to think that he had died in a tragic accident when out with friends than learn what had actually happened. I'd wished I hadn't done it, but revealing what I had done would cause never-ending ripples in a pond. And whatever was said or not said, Gavin was gone. So I reserved my right to remain silent and chose to be my own judge and jury. I delivered myself a verdict of not proven. You may not agree. You may feel that justice was not served. Weeks after the funeral, I returned to the flat after a late lecture to find it in darkness. I wandered into the sitting room and switched on the light, struggling to undo the zip on my new green coat. I had stuck the Anna Karenina coat into a bin bag the night of Gavin's fall and taken it to a charity shop as soon as possible. I could never wear it again. I finally got the zip to cooperate and when I looked up, there was Gavin, sitting in his accustomed place on the sofa, large as life, so to speak. He looked just as he did when we first met. He looked alive, real, normal. He half smiled and raised his hand and gave me one of those funny little wiggle finger waves. Hello. He didn't say a word. I stood there, stock still, speechless. A couple of minutes later, Tish came bundling into the room, talking about her day and suggesting pasta for dinner. I looked at her, then back to the sofa. Gavin had vanished. Alone in my room, I tried to come to terms with what I had seen. Was he a figment of my imagination? Was I hallucinating? 
Or was there even the remotest chance that I had seen a ghost? I couldn't tell Tish, that was certain. She would insist I was suffering from delayed shock and needed counselling. Not a chance. Definitely not. I might reveal something I'd wish I hadn't. And if it were a ghost, all the counselling in the world would make zero difference. It was a one-off. It wouldn't happen again. Oh, but it did. And it still does. Always when I am alone at home, day or night, any hour, and often. Sometimes three days in a row. Then every couple of weeks, sometimes for a few minutes, sometimes for much longer. There is no pattern to it, no appointment system. I call them visits. Not hallucinations or manifestations or visitations or anything else. Just visits. I have never felt afraid or threatened. His is a benign presence. He is always seated. He never approaches me and I have never tried to touch him. Somehow I think that would be rude. I started speaking to him when I became accustomed to his company. He doesn't speak in reply, but he does communicate with body language and facial expressions. Quite eloquent, really. I have learned to read him well. He doesn't age. He changes his clothes according to the weather and the time of year. Jerseys in the winter, t-shirts in the summer. But he always wears his brogues. Time passed and we graduated and headed out on our careers. Richard, Tish and I remained friends. Richard and Tish never did get together. Tish is a consultant paediatrician now and lives and works in Sheffield. She married a cardiac surgeon. I like him very much. Their daughter is also a doctor. They are rightly proud of her. Richard is quite the celebrity these days. After completing his PhD at Oxford University, he pursued the academic life for a while. Then opportunities began to present themselves in marine conservation work in different countries around the world. So he travels a lot. He fronted a hugely popular TV documentary series on marine mammals, which made him a household name. He appears regularly on chat shows and news programmes discussing climate change and the sea, often sitting alongside his old friend, the rock star, who shares his passion for saving the oceans one fish at a time. It ups the profile. He has never married. He jokes he is still waiting for the right mermaid to swim along. I stayed on in Edinburgh after graduation and qualified as a solicitor. Any hopes I had of a career in the field of criminal law died with Gavin. Instead, I work as a private client lawyer involved with trusts, wills and the winding up of deceased's estates. It is a quiet and sombre occupation, with no prospect of my name being mentioned in the media. No one will ever recall. I was one of the students there on the night a boy fell down a close and died. Which is, I think, in my best interest. As soon as I could, I moved into a place on my own. It makes life easier for Gavin's visits if I don't share with anyone. And whenever I move house, 
He follows me. I have never suggested he stops visiting. I have a feeling that would fall on deaf ears. He is a constant in my life. I have never married nor had children. I have had a few relationships through the years, but they can't last. At what point during a romantic dinner is it right to say, I see dead people? It is impossible to explain my relationship with Gavin. He is part of my baggage now, my buy-one-get-one-free person. Except, awkwardly, only I can see him. So I live a solitary life, not a social one. So many people complain about their so-called significant other not listening to them. The same can't be said of Gavin. He is a good listener. I can tell him anything, and I do. It took me a long time to summon up the courage to talk about the night of his fall. To confess. But it seemed he already knew. I am pretty sure he did right from the start, even as he was falling. He was waiting patiently for me to say something. Mea culpa. Mea maxima culpa. No one else was responsible. That was a difficult visit for me. But Gavin smiled and shrugged his shoulders in a water-under-the-bridge kind of way. During my mother's illness, I spent a lot of time back and forth between Edinburgh and my hometown. Talking to Gavin about my worries for her helped, and I realised, with a bit of a jolt, that I truly had no one else to turn to. It was only after she died that I saw how forgetful and confused my father had become. No formal diagnosis, but you can guess, I'm sure. I went into the law office where I had worked as a student for advice on local care facilities for him, which they considered worth exploring. I came out with a job offer. Their private client partner was retiring and they thought I would be a great fit for their business. I consulted both my father and Gavin. All my father could understand was that I would be moving back home permanently. This made him very happy. Gavin seemed positively enthusiastic. And so I accepted and made the move. I couldn't risk confusing my father more than he was already, so Gavin visits me at my office when I am alone. I occupy a vast room with a double bay window on the first floor of a Victorian building overlooking the town square. Its polished oak floors and slightly worn rugs, its wood-panelled walls and floor-to-ceiling bookcases give it a look of an old-fashioned gentleman's club. Locally, it is reputed to be haunted. Is that so? I said somewhat disingenuously. I found Gavin a leather tub chair in an antique shop. It sits in the corner of my room and he seems to find it very comfortable. He has a taste for the gothic. The ambiance suits him. I had only been in my new firm for a short time when one morning my father didn't wake up. So sad for me, but perhaps a blessing for him. No reason then for Gavin not to visit me at home. 
but that didn't work out. There is a problem. I have fallen heir to my parents' usually docile ginger cat, and she does not like Gavin one bit. She raised her hackles and with eyes blazing and claws out, she hissed and spat at the armchair in which she sat. That cat is no fierty. Animals are said to sense the presence of ghosts, phantoms, spirits, or whatever name you might give to a being not of this world. So with the help of a ginger cat, I finally know I have not conjured up an imaginary friend. I have not been hallucinating. I have not been a functioning mad person all these years. I may be psychic, which may be the same as delusional or mad to some people, but they have not had the benefit of my experience. I am not crazy. I have been haunted for most of my life. I actually do see dead people. Or one, anyway. Gavin is a ghost, exactly the being he feared. The irony is not lost on me. Christmas is around the corner, and I know I will not see him for a while. He stops visiting before the anniversary of his fall and doesn't come back until after Twelfth Night. I understand. It is a difficult time of year for us both. Usually, when he's not around, I get on with my day and don't give him a second thought. But when he is not about at Christmas, I think about him all the time. And what I did in graphic detail. He is more present than ever in his absence. He is with me, even when he isn't. But this year, I have used the space and time to think clearly, not simply about him and what I did, but about my life and the nature of our relationship. When Gavin returns in the new year, I have a couple of things to say to him. First, I will tell him I have written this narrative, and I will tell him why I have given up my right to remain silent after so very long. You see, I have the same symptoms of the hereditary disease of which my mother died. I will see a specialist in the new year, but I have prepared myself for the worst. To die will be an awfully big adventure. The words of Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up, just like Gavin. I will tell him that I have decided to set the record straight while I have the time. I will leave this narrative with my personal papers to be found after I die. I want people to know what I did. I feel I owe it to Gavin. He has earned my public confession and it will affect me not one jot. It costs me nothing. Some will be shocked. Richard and Tish, who are my only friends, will find it hard to take. I will be judged, I'm sure. Guilty. Not guilty, not proven, crazy or delusional. The town will be alive with gossip. There might be no consensus except that I am not the nice person they thought I was. 
Gavin's family may even find it a comfort to know that he exists still on another plane, that he seems well and content, and that he has taken his revenge. For that is the second thing I want to discuss with Gavin. It almost makes me laugh. I can't believe I didn't see it. I have to admit to my chagrin that I am not as clever as I thought. Gavin, from beyond the grave, has quietly and systematically visited upon me his own form of retribution, exacted his own punishment for my actions. What the law could not do for want of evidence and information, he has achieved. He has taken the life I hoped for in return for the life he should have lived. I seriously underestimated him. I should have realized from the outset that anyone who passes the entrance exam to a prestigious school and who can acquire an encyclopedic knowledge on any subject as Gavin has on the music he loves must be as clever as any smug student like me. His persistent visits have shaped my life. I live alone. My only friends live far away and are engrossed in their fulfilling lives with little time for me. I have not had the love and support of a partner. I have not experienced the joy of family life, no children or grandchildren with whom to have fun on Christmas morning, presents round the tree. All the things I denied Gavin. My career has been unremarkable instead of stellar as I had hoped. No excitement in my work. Instead, I face each day the impact of death on those who have lost the ones they loved. I see their grief and their pain. I cannot avoid it. It is a constant reminder of the effect of Gavin's death on his family. And I am back where I started, in a small borders town, one with an abbey, the place I couldn't wait to leave. I may never have been imprisoned, but I have never been free. I have never been allowed to forget. And how he achieved this is nothing short of genius. Gavin knew that if he manifested as the typical shrieking, wailing phantom described in tales of the supernatural to terrorize me, or whispered in my ear, or if he sat on my bed in the dead of night, or clanked chains and walked through walls, if he threw objects around and attacked me physically, I would fight back. He knew I was no fierty. I would find a way to exercise him from my life. So he played a long game, subtle, benign, unthreatening. He knew all about me from my talking to him. Nothing makes you speak more than silence from the other person. He slowly manipulated me and my life. Gavin has locked me up more efficiently than any jailer. 
Well done, Gavin. I'm really impressed. I like clever people. Maybe when I join him on the other side, if that's the right expression, we can have a proper conversation. I imagine he has a lot to say to me after decades of silence. Will my death end the life sentence he has imposed on me? Will it bring his forgiveness? My absolution? Or will he continue to toy with me? Time will tell. On this Christmas day, which without being mawkishly sentimental may be my last, I will follow my usual routine. I will sing in the choir at the Christmas morning service in my local church. We will perform, as usual, amongst other traditional carols, the hymn, Whilst Shepherds Watch Their Flocks By Night. We have a lot of sheep and shepherds in this part of the country, so it is a firm favourite. I will greet my colleagues and neighbours and wish them the compliments of the season, as befits a lady of a certain age and pillar of the community. Then, if it is not too slippery underfoot, I will take a walk by the river before returning home to spend the rest of the day on my own with the cat. Everyone knows this is my preference. No one will come calling. I have muttered the words over-commercialized and for children, often enough, to explain that beyond singing in the church service, I don't do Christmas. They will learn the real reason soon enough. I don't drink alcohol. It loosens the tongue, and I have had so much best left unsaid. But I make an exception at Christmas. When the curtains are drawn and the fire is crackling in the grate, I will take the little bottle of chilled champagne from the fridge, pop the cork, pour a glass, and drink to absent friends, and to one in particular, my nemesis, my judge and jury, my companion for most of my life. The clever boy who outwitted me and who is no longer a fierty. And I will say, and mean it sincerely, Merry Christmas, Gavin. That was Barbara Buchanan. This episode was written by Barbara Buchanan. It was recorded, produced, and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. For the avoidance of any doubt, it's worth stating that the events in this episode are entirely fictional. Another of our winter tales in the vein of last year's episodes, The Point and Shoes for Black Donald. We hope you've enjoyed our forays into fiction. It's something we're considering doing at other times of the year, so let us know if it's something you'd like to hear more of. Finally, as this year draws to a close, I'd like to apologise for the lack of output we've had this year. It's due to various reasons, but as we stated at the end of the last episode, we are by no means wrapping up. Life just gets in the way sometimes. And although we've only put a few episodes out this year, for me personally, they're some of my favourite that we've done. So hopefully that counts for something. Anyway, wishing you all a weird new year when it comes, and join us again soon for more tales from Weird Scotland.